In the not-too-distant future, wars will no longer exist, but there will be rollerball. Imagine a world without nations. A few of us making decisions on a global basis. Controlled by corporations. No sickness, no needs, and many luxuries. A society that has abolished love and hate, aggression, and individuality replaced them with the most fantastic entertainment of all time, televised to two billion hypnotized viewers. It is more than a game. It is Rollerball. James Caan, John Houseman, Rollerball, rated R. Welcome to The Bloody Pit. This is episode number 64, and tonight I'm going to sit down for the first time in well over a year. Has with, it been that long? It has been well over a year. I don't think we recorded at all together in 2017, but let me introduce him. This is returning uh, <laughs> re- returning uh, victim. Uh, this is Randy Fox. Hello. Randy, I know you've been very busy, which is why 2017 was a, a, a year without a, a Randy podcast. Yeah, a year without a Randy. Yeah. So tell us, uh, what have you been? I know you've been. I know, you, I know you're a freelance writer, and you've been doing a lot of writing. But on what subjects, sir? Well, well, mostly music. I mean, yeah. I, I I haven't done much film writing in the last year. I've been mainly writing for music magazines, and I'm and I and I sold a book, so I've got a book that I'm working on right now, which hopefully will be written by May and out by the end of the year. It's going to be a history of Excello Records, which was a renowned blues and R&B label that was based here in Nashville during the 50s and 60s. Cool. So. Uh, I know that uh, Yeah, I know that you mostly write about uh, about music, about this uh, this twangy stuff. Yeah. Uh, am I wrong? Well, rocking rock and stuff. <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, most, mostly roots music, but yeah, some other stuff too. So. And being based in Nashville, I know you're actually able to get a few uh, interesting interviews to help bo- to help bolster some of this some of this stuff. And I think some of that leads some of these pieces, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because there's still a lot, especially since I tend to write about older music. A lot of folks are gone, but there's still yeah. a lot of these guys out there. And sometimes the the most interesting, it's it's kind of like. Uh, in music, often the most interesting people to, to talk to aren't the stars. They're the musicians, they're the session guys, the engineers that worked in the studios. And uh, kind of like a lot of times in Hollywood, some of the most interesting interviews aren't necessarily the stars. It's the character actors or the people that worked on sets or did things like that. Because, That's true. Because it was their job, you know, and they, they were there every single day. And in a lot of cases, uh, in the case of Hollywood, a lot they worked on hundreds of movies. And, and same thing with music. I mean, you talk to engineers or producers or guys like that, and um, you can really get some great stories from people like that. So. Cool. cool. What magazines do you end up being published in? Um, uh, well, I write for I write for Vintage Rock, which is a British magazine. I also write for Country Music in the UK. Uh, I've done some pieces for uh, Record Collector and Long Live Vinyl, which are also UK magazines. Uh, closer to home here, I write for um, the East Nashvilleian. It's kind of my main gig here in town now. Um, I occasionally write for the Nashville scene, although not quite as much as I used to. And then occasionally there's some odd other things, too. I've done some, 
I do some liner notes for reissues for Sundays and Bear Family Records and a few other things like that. So Cool, cool, cool. I, on the other hand, just podcast. Yeah. Well, I also radio broadcast, too. And that's oh, my that's other right. life, too. That, so. That's right. You, uh, yeah. you are, uh, you're one of the co-runners of a radio station here in Nashville. Yeah, I'm, so. I'm one of the co-founders and uh, programming director and now president of uh, WXNA-FM, which is a low-power FM station here in Nashville. Uh, we're a free-form station, which if the listeners out there are familiar with stations like WFMU in Jersey City, or KEXP in Seattle, we kind of follow that model. Um, we're totally listener-supported, nonprofit. Every show is different. So we can go from punk rock to jazz to hip-hop to industrial to hillbilly music to blues to punk rock again or whatever is on the, <laughs> on the thing. Yeah, I, yeah, we just celebrated International Clash Day at the station yesterday, and we had some real cool programs to tie in with that. Gotta love it. And um, we've been on the air now a little over a year and a half, and um, oh, and and even though we're only a, a little over a year and a half old, we were voted uh, best radio station in town uh, by the Nashville scene, which does a best of Nashville poll every year of listeners. And uh, so that was pretty exciting to win that after only about a year on the air. That gives you some street cred. Yes, it does. Somebody said, you know, somebody pointed out uh, this last week, somebody said, uh, well, gee, Nashville is like the music city of the world. So if you're the best radio station in Nashville, that means you're the best radio station in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, if someone else wants to say that, that's okay. I'm not going to. I'm not going to make that claim yet, though. I'm, so, I'm going I'm to say that's a bit of a leap, but it is a, is yeah. it, it is a fun leap. I'm I, gonna, I did not argue against the yeah. logic, put it that way. Yeah, let's, so. let's, let's leave that as it is yeah. and go, yeah. And right. if somebody wants to check us out, you can check us out online at WXNAFM.org. We stream through our website, and we also stream through the TuneIn app at WXNA. So. WXNA. Yeah. Does that stand for anything? Well, um, W because we're east of the Mississippi. East of the Mississippi, of course. X because it's cool. <laughs> and N A for Nashville. So that's the way it breaks down. <laughs> that uh, you know, honestly, I wasn't expecting logic, but I guess it kind of logically fits. So that's good to know. Yeah. All right. Well, as anyone who's paid attention to this podcast for the past few years, although uh, sadly, as I said, not last year. The thing that Randy and I have been getting together to do podcast-wise here on The Bloody Pit has been a kind of uh, random stroll through science fiction films of the 1970s. We've covered covered a few favorites, and uh, tonight we're going to do another one. Um, I don't know that this this episode is going to be quite as epically long as our uh, Logan's <laughs> Run episode. Our Logan's Run episode uh, damn near broached three hours, and, and and although everyone seems to have enjoyed it, that's a lengthy podcast. That's a big chunk of sci-fi from the '70s. But this time out, we'll see what happens here uh, tonight. We're talking about Rollerball, the 1975 film from uh, director Norman Jewison, starring James Caan and a host of other folks that we will be talking about. And uh, I'm looking very much forward to it. And uh, I tell you what we'll do is we'll take a quick break, and we'll come back and we will dive into a discussion of Rollerball. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. 
Here your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to the discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the Monster vs. Monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just $2, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. The following is a message from the American Podcast Council. We need your help. Podcastophobia strikes four out of five Americans every day, and chances are that someone you love or could love given time is currently suffering from this devastating affliction. But it doesn't have to be that way. For zero dollars a day, you can help. Please, make some time today to let just one person know about a favorite podcast of yours. It can be this one, but it doesn't have to be. But it probably should be, but seriously, no pressure. And show them where to find it and how to download, play, and subscribe to it. And tell us what you recommended. Use the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y pod. Thank you for speaking out. And thank you for listening. Rollerball, 1975, a film directed by Norman Jewison with a screenplay by William Harrison. And it is also based on his uh, short story, The Rollerball Murders. A rare thing in a science fiction film, the man who wrote the source material actually wrote the screenplay. Uh, it does come out in uh, when you learn more about the film that actually the screenplay was a bit of a collaboration between him and Norman Jewison, but William Harrison is the only credit on the uh, on the film with a written by credit. So all all credit goes to him for for both 
writing the original story, and uh, penning the screenplay. Good job all the way around. Now, Rollerball is a very interesting thing. And if you've never read the uh, short story, it's like eight or ten pages long. Am I wrong? Yeah, not very long. Yeah. It's, wor- it's Maybe worth 12, reading. I think, or yeah. something like that. But. It's worth reading. Uh, if, you've, if you've ever seen the film or never seen the film, read the, read the short story. And I think that if you read the short story, I think it'll give you, a, give you the desire to actually see the movie. Um, this, is, this is a fascinating thing. And I think the first thing that we need to do is kind of explain what Rollerball, the game itself, is. Because it is, uh, remember, this is a science fiction film. It's set in the uh, futuristic world of 2018. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> way off into the oh. into the future, that 21st century stuff. I, I, I myself, I hope to live to see 2018. 19 years after the moon was blown out of orbit, because I always <laughs> like to date things. So. I don't need to get into another discussion yeah. of Space 1999, <laughs> because that's been happening to me way too frequently lately. But... Rollerball is a, it's a it's a it's a game that uh, combines. Pri- it's primarily a form of kind of roller derby or or roller hockey, I would say. But uh, instead of uh, people using sticks, they're really concentrating on um, getting a ball into a goal, kind of like either hockey or more like basketball. It's uh, it's really really violent. And it, like I say, a combination of roller, a roller derby. It's played on roller skates, but on the track also there are motorcycles. <laughs> um, it's played on a circular banked track, much like uh, roller derby was in the 1970s. Right. Some, ro- yeah. Some roller, yeah. In the 70s, it was. Yeah. 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 And today, um, yeah. Uh, I guess it'd be safe to uh, call it a full contact sport because uh, people regularly die playing yeah. this game, or at least get very well. Very badly injured, sometimes yeah. die. Yeah, and but but in, with increasing mortality as the movie goes along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, so it's not un it's not unknown to have uh, people be killed playing this game. It's not uh, as common as the as thing as the end of the film uh, makes it because things kind of ramp up with a specific topic uh, in mind for the people, kind of stripping the rules away from the game to make it more violent. But it is. Uh, a game played in periods of uh, 30 minutes each. I think uh, they're halves of 30 minutes each. And it's rather brutal. There are rules. Uh, you can get penalties and get thrown into a penalty box like in uh, in uh, ice hockey. Uh, but the viciousness and violence of the game is pretty much kind of the, the reason it exists. It's very much a uh, Roman Colosseum type of thing. It's, it's clear that what most people are there to see is uh, the violence? Yeah, I absolutely. Mean, they definitely come I mean, to people root are for rooting the for their team. Well, there's a sense of, I mean, like with all sports, there's a sense of tribalism is that people hope are rooting for the team they like or where they're from or their hometown team. But, but it's very much, um, yeah, it's very much the circuses as in bread and circuses because we're yeah. we're talking about a, a futuristic society, year 2018. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, where it basically the entire you know the, world, the entire world has become an oligarchy. Uh, democracy no longer exists. It's run by corporations and the rich. Yeah, no more nations. No, no more, nation, no more nation, states. nation states. Yeah, uh, different. The world's been divided up amongst different corporations, and this is basically a, a game that is out there to entertain the masses and keep them happy. Yeah. You know, you, you give, you, you supply food to them, you supply what they want, um, you keep them entertained, 
and uh, they won't ask too many questions about freedom or democracy or things like that. Uh, you know, it's a nightmarish world that can never exist in the real world. Of course not. No, 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 never, never. Uh. <laughs> well, that's the game of rollerball in, in a nutshell, and the world that this kind of takes place in, which is obviously fascistic. I mean, we're talking about a, a, a society, a global society, where there is no, uh, there are no governments per se. Everything is run by various corporations that are in charge of very large segments of how things run. Um, there's energy. There's communications. There's uh, uh, food. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so each of these is uh, situated or at least centered in one city somewhere on the planet, uh, and it is these corporations that sponsor and run these rollerball teams. Oh, and, and gradually, do we want to skip ahead a little bit here? And, sure, go ahead. Yeah, well, gradually, of course, uh, what you come to find out is that the, part of the whole idea of rollerball is that there is a psychological control aspect to the game in that they have always wanted to emphasize the idea that it's teams that win. It's teams that win. It's not individuals. Right. Because the the goal is they, they don't... The corporations, in order to stay in power, must maintain the idea that no one individual can be a hero or leader. The only way we can succeed is by all working together. We all have to be cogs in the machine if we want to maintain happiness and peace and, and everything else. So, and it's very interesting so that... We, we don't want anyone... We don't want yeah. individualism or exceptionalism. And I found it interesting that... Uh, once you pay attention to that aspect of it, I mean, it's not that the film hides it, but once you realize that and kind of look back on it, you'll notice that um, even though we have the John Houseman character who is ostensibly the head of the Energy Corporation, um, he's not he's unable to make very specific and far-reaching decisions without unanimity amongst the heads of the other right. corporations as well. There are these. Uh, there's this uh, very interesting board meeting board meeting sequence, where um, the, it appears that everyone must vote in the affirmative for a particular action to take place, and so even at that level, at the very highest level of this society, uh, these decisions are not being made by an individual. No one is taking initiative on their own. This is being the the, the credit or blame is being spread out amongst right. a group of people. And, and and it gets even deeper into that theme. I think it even, from my perspective, it takes it even a little step further, but we'll get into that as we go oh, through the yeah. plot. Well, I tell you uh, what, let's... To the point uh, where I think that comes out. Okay, well, well why don't we uh, take a run through uh, just kind of a basic outline of the plot here. One of the things that I think um, is one of the reasons I love this film, and I think it is, uh, I think it is an excellent movie, is one of the reasons why when I saw this film when I was a kid, when I was much younger... I didn't think it was as much of it as I do as I do now as an adult because as a kid, the main draw of the film probably, and let's be honest, is its violence, is the action. Uh, it is watching this rather um, uh, kinetic series of events that propel things forward uh, because there are basically three huge action set pieces, three games that the film spends a lot of time concentrating on. There's the opening, there's one about midway through, and then there's the finale. And uh, uh, interspersed in between, and I understand this movie's uh, two hours and five minutes long. 
And uh, it was a bit of a shock when I sat down to rewatch this movie uh, that it was that long because my memory of it was that it was about an hour and 45 minutes long. Now, that's a little bit of my mind playing tricks on me, my memory just being a bit wrong. But honestly, that's my memory of how long the film felt. In other words, it felt like a substantially lengthy piece of filmmaking, but it didn't feel like it was over two hours. And there's a reason for that. It's because the time we're watching the gameplay is... It's almost as if time just flies by. Yeah. Uh, those sequences, uh, it's not that they're uh, edited in some kind of uh, kine- you know, super kinetic way to make them um, unintelligible. It's just that they're so tense that you're completely concentrating on what's going on. Because they're very clever in showing you the game in the first sequence of the movie. Because they're having to, A, get you excited. And at the same time, by virtue of watching the game, explain the rules to you. Explain to you how scoring works. Uh, why uh, once uh, a rollerball player has the ball, he has to keep it in in view of the other players. It has to be displayed. How play begins and ends. Uh, they 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 emphasize that you know once the the ball uh, falls into the gutter at the the center of the uh, the rounded track, then it's a dead ball, and they have you know that that ball's dead, and they have to uh, they have to launch another one onto the track. Uh, there are all these rules and uh, circumstances that you are picking up in that first segment. So the whole first segment, which is about the first 15 to 20 minutes of the movie, zips by. Because yeah. there's just too much to pay attention to, and you're soaking up all this information, and there's just you know motorcycles crashing into people, and people getting punched in the face, and you're, you're, you're learning as you go. Um. I, I, you said you thought it was an hour and 45 minutes. I was actually thinking it was about 90 minutes long whenever I sat down to rewatch it this last time. Um, and, 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 but you're exactly right. I mean, the, the movie, to me, it's a fascinating movie of contrast because the, the action sequences are so exciting and they're so engaging and, and, and they move along so well. The parts in between are actually very subdued. Yes. But you never feel like the pace lags. It's not like, oh, that was so exciting, and now this is kind of the boring part. It, they're just as fascinating, but they're much more subtle and underplayed. And um, I, I think Rollerball is just a magnificent example, and this is partially because of Harrison's screenplay, I'm sure, and also Jewison's direction, um, is that it's just a marvelous example of how to make a movie and do a lot of explanatory dialogue correctly. Oh, I agree. Because because my big complaint with a lot of films is what I always like to say, the pulling down the chart scene. You know, at some point in the movie, someone <laughs> pulls a, ch- a wall chart down, you know, <laughs> and they get out the pointer and, well, this is this, and this is this, and here's, and here's, here's the core this, here's and the core this is how this connects to this, yes. and so forth. And, and that happens in so many science fiction and fantasy films, and what I really hate is when it happens to horror films nowadays. It just drives me up the wall. But, but Rollerball manages to squeeze in a just a ton I mean an encyclopedia of explanatory yeah. dialogue about the game, how what is what the history of the world, how they've gotten in this situation, how the war, world works now, how politics works now. And it's just so well done yeah. that you're you're soaking it in and, and like when I was watch rewatching this last night it was like, oh wow, that was an explanatory dialogue scene. I didn't really realize that, realize it until it was almost over. You know, uh-huh. but oh wait, wait, there's another one. You know, and and, and you just, it does it. Ne- the 
I mean, your your interest is engaged the whole time. And I think, yeah, I mean, this should almost be used as an example of like, here's how to do a lot of explanatory dialogue and never bore the the viewer, you know. And a, and a lot of this is that past a certain point, past um, past, I, I can't remember. I should have I should have time coded it out, but past a certain point, you're you're kind of being drawn into it. Uh, at least I think as an adult you are because you're paying attention to some of the subtleties of of the emotions that are on screen. Because some of these emotions are very muted, and they're muted for a reason. They're being muted by the society itself. But past a certain point, you begin to realize that as we follow Jonathan E., the main character played by James Caan, uh, he is being asked to do something that he does not want to do, and he's going to refuse to do it. And this puts him at odds with the society as a whole that he has been very much at the top of the food chain. He is really only one level beneath the uh, the the top the upper echelon of people who actually run things. He's not and I love this, he's not an executive. Well well I, I would argue against that just a little bit. Oh well, a little bit which which part? In, in the sense that he's saying that he's at the upper echelon. I mean he he's not, from my perspective he's not He's like a prize racehorse. Oh yes, yes, indeed. That's what he is. He's he's never he's not really a human being in the sense of like the executives are, or maybe even some workers are. You know, you could you could argue it's like, yeah, he 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 has all these luxuries, privileges they call our privileges. He has all these privileges, but but they're they're because he's the prize racehorse. He's the celebrity. He's, he's the, the yeah. famous person. Yeah, he's, he, the, he's, he's he's the sports celebrity. That's right, exactly. I mean, he he doesn't really have any kind of free will or freedom, and that's you could argue. Well, nobody else really does in this society either. See, but in some it. ways, he has even less. Well, that's just it because of he of has where stopped. he's at. You're right. You're right. He doesn't have it really very much free will at all. But until this point, he has thought that he does. Yeah. He's thought that he is at the top of the heap. As a matter of fact, as things play out, you can see that the only thing that has really made him unhappy in his entire adult life appears to be that they took his wife away from him because an executive wanted her. Right. That is the only thing that has been any kind of, you know, fly in the ointment for this man's career or life up to this point. And it is paramount in his mind that that needs to be rectified. And the first chance he gets, the first opening he gets to be able to work his will, that's his first request. Yeah. When I I, I made a note of this last night when I was rewatching it, because um, <laughs> this happened to pop in my head, and I said, there's nothing worse than a racehorse that starts to question why it's running around in a circle. And yes. that's basically what this story really and truly at its heart is about. Yeah. Is Jonathan E is that prize racehorse who's happy to make that circle around the track and win that race for his masters. And one day he starts to say, Wait a minute, why am I running around in a circle? Yeah. You know, and that's that's really it. And and but then the fascinating thing about his character is is that is that um and this was the other thing that goes with that, is that he he's kind of interesting because he's he's the one character he's not really he's not really smart enough I don't want to say he's stupid but I, he's not smart enough to realize 
that he truly is trapped, that he yes. is screwed. Yes. You know, that I mean the other characters, I think even even the executives kind of realize, you know, hey, I may be executive, I may be at the top of this, but I'm just a prisoner like everybody else in this society. And and I know that I'm I am, so therefore I just have to go along with it and enjoy what I can. Whereas Jonathan, whenever he starts to wake up, it's like he's not smart enough to realize, oh, there's no way out for me. Yeah. So he continues to try to find a way out, even when there is no way out for him. You know, and so. he and he continues to do all he knows how to do, which is to just barrel forward and play the game just as hard as he can. Right. And that's one of the problems. I. That's his. That's his main problem. And you touched on something that I'd like to to speak to specifically, which is that in this society, in this twenty eighteen future world, it's very clear that. They've done away with education. They make it very clear. Um, Jonathan E. goes through the process process of attempting to get some some information in a couple of ways. And his first way of doing this is to attempt to get some books. Well, nobody has books anymore. Right. All nobody the, needs those things. Nobody needs those That's things. That's all that egghead stuff. That, yeah. So he's when he starts to try to question things and starts to try to uh, find out what he... Try to figure out even just what he needs to know... He's stymied because there is a library, there is a librarian, but all the books have been digitized. And you, even if you get the book that you want, you're not actually getting the book, you're getting a... Summary. Right. They've been summarized. Right. Yeah. This means that... This is, this is that, that nastiest of all things. That thing where you realize things have gone very badly in this society because... Now you realize that although this man can read, we see him reading, he clearly can read, there is a stopping point where education just ceases in this culture. And it ceases at a certain level where critical thinking is not taught, the, the, the idea of delving deeper into something beyond the surface is not taught, and this is what you were talking about a minute ago with him not being quote-unquote smart. It's not that he's not smart, it's that he's clearly uneducated. Right. And it's this lack of education that stymies him for so long. Even when he's able to use his celebrity status, his privilege, to get into certain positions to be able to, quote-unquote, ask questions, he's so uneducated that he doesn't have the words to properly form the questions that would give him the information that might actually help him. So the society has been built so effectively that this man who is in a position to be able to honestly dig into this and find out what he wants to know can't even properly form a question that would get him information that would be useful. All right. That's a good point because there's a couple, especially in the latter half of the film, he starts yeah. he starts, he starts trying to articulate what he wants to know. Yeah. And, and, he, and he can't. can't. He can't. Yeah. It, 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 there's a point where he says something like, um, um, there, there, you know, there's just something wrong. Mm-hmm. But I don't know what it is. There's something wrong Something's here. Wrong. Something's and, wrong. And I think, and I think, the, to me, I mean, this may be skipping a little bit ahead, but when what he after he is kind of like unable to get any books at the local library, he find they tell him, well, there's a like a massive computer in Geneva, and that's where everything ultimately goes. Right. So he he goes to Geneva. Um, there's this wonderful scene where he meets 
Ralph, Ralph Richardson, Richardson yeah. who's who's this weirdo, eccentric, you know, fuddy duddy, you know, nerdy, nebbishy type uh, librarian and keeper of the computer. Uh-huh. And uh, he gets actually into the chamber where, like, the computer that's supposed to have all the knowledge of the world is there. And he starts asking these questions. And the computer just starts kind of giving him nonsense back. And there's two ways to look at that. I don't think, some it's, people, I don't think it's nonsense. Well, well, and some people might say, well, well, it's been programmed not to give out the, the true answer. That's not what I thought. But I don't think that's the case yeah, at all. No. That's not it. I think what that is is that it's, that's the moment when you realize that no one is, is in control of the society. They've set up this perpetuating thing. Right. And like we said earlier with, with, with the executives, they all have to agree on something, but none of them really know what they're doing. They're all just kind of like, yeah, that sounds good to me. Well, we all agree. You know, but, but nobody, it's like nobody knows. You know, it's like even the, the supercomputer doesn't have the answer to the question he's looking for because, okay, who's... What is the point of this society? Why why are things this way? Or or, or who's in charge? And the answer is no one is. It's yeah. just this. It's just kind of come, become this self perpetuating thing, which is there's no way it can last. I mean, you know, <laughs> you yeah, know, it's, I, I don't yeah, think, it's this, I, I don't think that there is. This isn't the Emerald City. There isn't an old man standing behind right. a curtain pulling levers. There, this thing has been set up in such a way that everyone is doing their part. And as long as they keep these blinders on and just focus on the thing they're supposed to do, everything will work. What they've managed to do is they, you know, they, as they mentioned in, when they talk about the game, is that the whole point of rollerball is to kill, kill the idea of indi- individualism. Yeah. They have been so successful at killing individualism that even the leaders can't be individuals. Right. So there is no one, there's really no one in charge of this thing. It's just this kind of blind... Thing that keeps self perpetuating until one day it falls, and and let, let's maybe we should talk about some more. I don't know if well, you want to t- talk about what, more I details of the plot, but let's uh, but, um, let's uh, kind of go chronologically through the film. Okay, I, I, we're, we're we're jumping around here, and, and, and exactly. Uh, um, I, I would hope that uh, if you're coming to this podcast and and wanting to uh, learn about rollerball, a you don't worry about spoilers, you don't care about spoilers yeah. because that would be a problem. <laughs> Or you know the film well enough that uh, hopefully the, our discussion of it will give you an idea of how we view it, and uh, hopefully spur some uh, spur some uh, thoughts in uh, how you have looked at this film in the past, whether you liked it or disliked it. So hold on a minute, and then we'll uh, we'll, we'll start kind of just slow walking our way through the plot, and that'll allow us to kind of pick certain subjects out. Right. Jonathan E., who's played by James Kahn, is the veteran star of the Houston Rollerball Team. That's the Energy Corporation Rollerball Team, by the way, which is uh, the capital. Uh, the capital is Houston for some reason. Uh, could be oil, you think? Yeah, maybe. Uh, he has become, Jonathan E. has become the sport's most recognizable and talented player. And he's been playing the game for 10 years. Yeah. And as soon as you hear that, that doesn't sound all that impressive to our ears. Uh, but as you learn more and more about the game, you realize just how impressive that is. After another uh, incredible impor- uh, performance against Madrid, Mr. Bartholomew, played by John Houseman, 
who is the chairman of the Energy Corporation, announces that Jonathan will be featured in a multivision broadcast about his career. Now, multivision is uh, the uh, the film's view of what television will become in the future. Um, it's interesting. It's not really what uh, it looks like now here in this strange world that we live in, although you know, we don't live in 2018, obviously. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> but uh, it, it is interesting. The whole idea of multivision, they kind of introduce, actually, in just the first few minutes of the film, by showing this huge array of cameras hanging over the rollerball track, giving you dozens of different camera angles on the rollerball track showing you being you know being able to to edit back and forth for the the televi- the televised version of the game uh so the idea of multivision is um you kind of have one large screen yeah and then several smaller screens that yeah that are all focused on the same per- for, for instance for an interview uh you would have four or four or five cameras trained on you so that you could essentially choose as a viewer which camera angle you wanted to watch this person from as they were interviewed. An interesting idea that uh, I'm sure seemed like a good idea when they made this movie, but it's not exactly become the way things are in uh, what is clearly right now not 2018. But instantly, I wanted to point this out, instantly you know it's in the future because of the font that all the numbers on the players' uniforms is in. <laughs> which, which I looked it up. That is actually, it, it's not exactly this, but it, it was based on the countdown font, which was designed by British designer Colin Brignall in 1965. It looked, and and it you looked see that a lot. You see that like a lot. A rocket, in, like a especially in countdown. late 60s yeah. and then 70s science fiction movies where, where it's that same kind of general font. You know, that, yeah. where it's like, the futuristic font. That one, everyone, one side of the, of the number is fat and one is very thin. Right, right. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. 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 But that's how you instantly know that you're in the future. Because, of oh, course. look, they're writing everything in that font. In that font, <laughs> of course. Uh, now, Mr. Bartholomew, played by John Houseman, uh, he tells Jonathan that he wants him to retire. They have a little uh, one-on-one conversation, um, just the two of them, and he explains to them that he wants him to retire. He offers Jonathan E. a lavish retirement package if he makes the announcement during the uh, multivision special. He then preaches to Jonathan about the benefits of corporate-run society and the importance of respecting executive decisions. But he never explains why he wants him to retire. Jonathan refuses and requests to see his former wife, Ella, who had suddenly been separated from him without explanation sometime before by the corporation. This is the uh, the wife, the woman that, woman that he clearly still loves, who uh, was taken from him because an executive wanted her instead. Yeah. And when you know that she's played by Maude Adams, you can kind of figure that out. Yeah. Or at least that's what he believes is the reason, which... Yeah, yeah. Which is, an, is a neat thing later in the film, I'll admit. Yeah. Uh, let, let's talk briefly about Maude Adams, just because I love the fact that Maude Adams is one of the few women in the world to have been a Bond girl twice. Oh, yeah. yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, that's that's a rare thing, but it's, it's, it's really cool. That's, that's uh, how uh, charismatic... Maude Adams was, is that she was a Bond girl twice. She got to play two different women in two different films. She's that cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> okay, suspicious of his forced retirement, Jonathan E. Goes, on, goes to a library and asks for books about the corporation and history. And he finds that all the books have been edited 
by energy and are now stored on supercomputers at large protected company locations. Spe- specifically Geneva. Is Correct. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and I thought this was, this was fascinating because this is when you start to see Jonathan, uh, when he's having this conversation with this libra- librarian that he quickly susses out is kind of a useless conversation because this woman doesn't know anything that's going to help him anyway. And you see him kind of get a little frustrated and then tamp it down immediately because he says, so you're a librarian, but there aren't any books, right? Yeah. And I, 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 that's, there's, there, are, there, are a, there are dozens of moments in this movie where I just want to give James Caan a big hug because he's so freaking good at this kind of stuff. That that's that's one of those scenes where you it's all in his face and it's all in his body language because he's well aware the way he plays Jonathan E. He's what the the character is well aware of his celebrity. He's been a celebrity. He's been a star and been in the public eye for so long that he's aware that he can walk into a room and people will see him and will notice him and will know who he is. And so he's very adept at using his celebrity to you know smoothly get what he wants and this is a strange moment in his life because he realizes i can't get what i want because it's, it, it it doesn't, doesn't exist, exist. <laughs> yeah yeah rollerball degrades into senseless violence as the rules are changed one by one to force jonathan out Houston's semifinal game against Tokyo has no penalties and only limited substitutions for players who are hurt. The brutality of the match kills several players, including Houston's lead biker, Blue. Jonathan's best friend and teammate, Moon Pie, is, is, uh, is damaged pretty horribly, honestly. Yeah. Uh, uh, played by John Beck. Uh, he's he's uh, set upon... Moon Pie is a pretty vicious character in the game. He plays the game very well, and he strides up close to the line of what is allowed in he, the game. He's kind of the in in some ways he's kind of the perfect rollerball player mm-hmm. because he really is kind of a dummy. All the, there, there's an interesting sequence before the Tokyo match where they have a coach, a special coach, brought in yeah. to kind of coach them on the fact that well, you know the um, the. Uh, um, the Tokyo team uses a lot of special martial arts moves or judo moves, and, and there's these things that you need to be aware of because you can't, they're going to be different, you know, playing them is different than playing some other teams. Right. And Moon Pie doesn't want any part of it. Oh, we'll just run over them, you know. Yeah. It's just kind of that redneck thing. Of, and he completely disrupts. Yeah, we're Americans. We'll, we'll just whip, whip them up, you know, blah, 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 you know, and, and so forth. So he's kind of, in some ways, he's kind of like the perfect rollerball player, this guy who is just... Violent and and out there and doesn't listen to anybody and certainly doesn't think and that's that's a very big difference there between him and uh, Jonathan E's character and I think it's interesting that early in the film and right after the first uh, game that we're shown there's a sequence where uh, John Houseman's character Mr Bartholomew goes down to the locker room after the game after all the men have showered and are and are just uh, getting ready to to call it a night and has a conversation with them in the in the uh, in the the locker room there and it's very clear it it's it's i don't even think it's very subtle but you as an audience member pick up on the fact that it's clear that mr bartholomew likes moon pie and kind of sees because later on you can think back on it and realize he sees moon pie as the man who's going to be the next you know focus for the team as its big star right Right. Because he's he's already being groomed. I mean, he singles him out and gives him 
a pill from you know a pill while he's having while he's having this conversation with the entire team. He speaks to him directly. Right. Right. And and, and, and it's interesting there because I, I think Mr. Bartholomew has an actual. On on a certain level, he has a genuine affection for Jonathan E's character too. Oh, certainly, yes, he does. Yeah, he he absolutely does. Now he's not willing to go out on a limb to, <laughs> if he's not done, if the prize racehorse doesn't do, do as he's told. But but he does have an affection for him. And Mr. Yeah. Bartholomew is clearly a very intelligent man, and he is well aware of the fact that he has kind of let Jonathan E's celebrity and stardom ride for a long time because he is so good at the game. He right. is exceptional. Right. It's interesting to contrast these two matches, too, but the, the mid-drink game that opens the film is is, is violent and, and everything, but, but in some ways, it's not more violent than maybe we're used to with maybe just a little bit more violent than, than football ice or, or football, ice hockey yeah. or something like that. Yeah. But then when you get to the Tokyo game, there's that definite shift of tone where this is, this it's brutal. It's very brutal. It's because, very brutal. And it's not yeah. just because uh, they're not calling some certain, you know, certain penalties or uh, they're kind of you know, being lax about the rules. Uh, it's because things have escalated and it seems as if the Tokyo team walks into the place with a specific purpose, which is to take some of these people out. Yeah, and specifically Jonathan E. I mean, you almost, the impression I get is that they were basically told, hey, if you take this guy out, there's a big bonus in it for you. Yeah. Or and something along those lines was, yeah, was probably said that. to them before yeah. the game. Yeah. Right. We're never shown that. I get that it impression. It does though. feel that, that, that whole sequence when we're, when they're, uh, right before the game, when we're uh, watching the two teams. Uh, as they play the corporate anthem, which I think is a very interesting thing to talk about in this uh, fake 2018 that we're talking about, the looks that are exchanged between players on the two opposing teams is they're, they're very interesting. They we didn't get that before the first game, right? And um, it's it's very interesting because it's hard to read exactly what's going on there. But this is not. It's almost as if. Some of those Tokyo players are looking at the Houston players and thinking ruefully of what they've been what they've been told to do and what they're being kind of enticed to do. Right. And it's only after the fact that you're looking back at it, or if you're watching a film for a second, the film for a second or third time, when you're seeing there's something going on here. There, this is not what they would normally do. Now, the thing at the end of the anthem, where the 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 Tokyo team turns to them and bows to them. I think that's pretty standard. I think that's probably something that they just do. That's a cultural thing. But those looks between the players, from from the Tokyo players to the Houston players, that's a very telling moment. And it's that's something that, as violent as this movie is, and it is violent. I mean, this movie earns its R rating. There's some there's some gruesome stuff. There's some blood, there's blood on the track. Yeah. Um, but what makes it an adult film in the best sense of the term for me? Are those quiet moments? Those moments where there's some, there, sometimes there's even dialogue going on, but it's it's ridiculous party dialogue that honestly is there for color instead of anything else. And what you're watching are adults who are either unaware of what is really going on or who are hyper aware but can't speak to it directly for whatever reason because then they would come under threat or they would come under suspicion. And I think it's fascinating to watch these characters 
have to speak obliquely about things. And with the Moses Gunn character, I think we'll get into that in a moment. Um, I'd like to talk about how Moses Gunn, at a certain point, you realize that Moses Gunn's character, uh, Moses Gunn plays um, a, guy, a character named Cletus, who is someone who has been a trainer of Jonathan Eve for right. a very and, long and he, time. He, he's a former rollerball player. You get the impression yeah. is that, yeah, he was he was probably about on the edge of retirement when Jonathan Eve started. You know, they, they kind of overlapped maybe yeah. and became friends. And uh, they're still friends and they, and they occasionally hang out and spend time together. But Moses Gunn's character of Cletus has moved up into some of the lower levels of uh, of management, shall we say, yeah. in, in the Energy Corporation. At a certain point, Jonathan E. asks him to kind of look into this situation about why he's being asked to retire. And Cletus says, yeah, it, of course, I'll, I'll, I'll look into it. But even as he's saying yes, we can tell that the fact that he's being asked to ask questions is a problem already for him. Yeah. So... Even at whatever lower level beneath Mr. Bartholomew that Moses Gunn's character is at in this corporation, he's aware enough that asking questions is a problem to have it make him uncomfortable. Right. He's As I said earlier, he's smart enough to know not to met, shake the boat. You know, yeah, don't, yeah. there's not, that will not do you, get you anything by asking questions. You just need to go along. Um, I want to touch on a couple of points before we move on here. Sure. Uh, first of all, both of these matches are just incredibly well choreographed. Oh, God, yeah. The, the stunt work is amazing. It makes me long for the days when there there was no CGI stunts and there was no, um, you know, green before screen. green screens and, and, and speeded up camera motions and, and the, the, you know, the, the Matrix 360 shots and everything. Yeah. This is just, these are just stuntmen out there wailing the hell out of each other and, uh, and doing an amazing job at it. And I think it's interesting to note that according to the Wikipedia entry on this, apparently this was the first film where every single stuntman was credited in the closing credits. Yes, yes, it's true. And uh, which became a standard practice after that. But boy, they, those guys earned their money in this film because those scenes are amazing. Tied to that earlier, what you said about seeing this movie when I was a kid, I, I didn't see this movie at the theater. I, I saw it when it made its network debut. Yeah. And, and my memory, apparently it wasn't on the network TV that time many times, but it, it went to syndication fairly quickly. Because I can remember in the late 70s when I was in high school seeing this film, you know, probably two, three, four times on television. And that was just probably, you know, from between 1977 and about 1981. And it seemed like it was just turning up all the time. It was a very popular film. And um, what I remembered about it is I remembered mainly the action sequences, the right. overall games. That's what sticks out. I remember, oh, yeah, there was some interesting stuff about totalitarianism and so forth in between, but that didn't really stick with me. Uh, when I first decided to revisit this film, and it, uh, after a couple of decades, I, I, I watched it about five, six years ago. And at the time, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this. This is, this is a lot of fun. This has got good action in it. This will be fun to watch. And, and it just what shocked me was exactly what you said earlier was like how freaking good of a film this is. Yes. And it's not the action that makes it so good. It's what comes in, in between. between the action is what yeah. makes it so good. And, and I, I mean, 
I may be jumping the gun here, this kind of thing we're supposed to say know, at the end. That's okay. But I think this may be one of the best science fiction films of of the period that we're talking about. You know, between that, yeah. that night, kind of 1967 to 1977 period, which yeah. is, when I say science fiction in the 70s, that's what that's I think really, of. That's what, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, that's yeah. really the 70s. is 67, it was 2001 to Star Wars. Because that's that period there. And, and I think Rollerball is definitely in the top ten of, of science fiction films for that time. But anyway, yeah, I wanted to interject that about the action sequences and um, and also the different impressions I had about this as, when I was younger compared to coming back and watching it as an adult. Well, no, and that's, being that's just question terribly impressed with the, with, with the film as a whole. So as the, the younger you, uh-huh. who wasn't really looking at the film as much more than just an action movie... Um, you, you liked it on that level initially, and it was later. That's, see, that's kind of what I thought it would be as well, because that's definitely what it was for me. Right. Which was when I when I saw this movie on, um, I don't think I ever saw it on commercial television. I think I first saw it on video, on VHS, sometime in the 80s. And I remember thinking, uh, because this was a period of time where I was just, you know, I was, <laughs> I was eating movies like they were potato chips just as fast as I could, just seeing as many movies as I could possibly see as quickly as I could. And I remember it making an impression on me, but it kind of got lost in the shuffle to a certain degree until I rewatched it years later. And you're right, my overriding memory is of the kinetic action sequences. And I remember what drew me back to watch it, and this this is this kind of stands out as an odd memory, but one that shouldn't come as much of a surprise. What drew me to watch the movie a second time years after initially seeing it was trying to remember what the rules of the game were. <laughs> Which yeah. is odd when you think about it because the movie gives you all that information up top. That's I mean, you learn everything you need to know about how the game is played and what the rules are in the first fifteen minutes. And then that's not that important the rest of the movie. I mean, you now know how the game is played. So right. for an hour and, you know, 45 minutes of the movie, that information that I went back to the film for just to peek, just to just to remind myself is unimportant. Right. Right. It's just bedrock information that everything else is built well, on. Well, that that's kind of the that's kind of the, the the science fiction nerd boy thing to concentrate <laughs> on. It's like, yeah, I want to know all the rules to rollerball yes. so I can play it or something. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of like the same people who watch Blade Runner and come away from it like, oh, wouldn't it be great to have a role playing game where I'm a replicant on the run from someone else or something like that? It's like, no, no, it's a shit. movie about human philosophy and what it means to be human. It, you don't want to go out reenacting this. You know, you know. Plus, anyway, plus anyway, it's, that's it's dystopian as hell. Do you really I mean, want to live in that world? Yeah, I know, I know. But that, that's the nerd thing, is where you yeah. want to create the trappings and miss the point of the whole damn thing. <laughs> Which, granted, I mean, I was totally guilty of that when I when I was younger. I mean, you know, we talked oh. about, when we talked about Logan's Run, I was yeah. in Logan's Run fan club, and I was like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to have a, you know, be a Sandman and then rebel and do all, you know, and all this. And again, it's like, oh, that's yeah. my problem with a lot of <laughs> science fiction nerdery, is that is that people focus in on the trappings and fail to see the art of these films. And and maybe I've just become old and I'm stuck up now because, because <laughs> I mean, I honestly, I used to get into that now, you know, but, but I, I really just don't have any interest in, in that part of it. I'm glad some people like that kind of things, you know, I'm some pe- people want to p- cosplay or what do whatever. But with me, it's like, is this a good piece of art? Does it speak to me or does it, does it entertain me? Does it speak to me uh, on a, what is intellectual it? What, does it what does it have to say about the yeah. human condition? 
you know, what does it have to do, you know, as William Faulkner said, the human heart in conflict with itself. I'm, I'm, all, I'm looking for that. Well, you know, when I was 14, I wasn't looking for that. And, and I would have seen, probably saw Rollerball the first time, I was probably about 14 or 15. Because yeah. I, believe, I believe it was on network TV the first time in 77, so I would have been 14 at that point. And like I said, I, I remember thinking like, oh, okay, there's some stuff here about crushing the human spirit and totalitarianism and all that. But the main point was like, oh, that game's really cool. <laughs> yeah. So now that you've brought it up, let's let's dive into what I see as one of the the main thrusts of what this movie is talking about, which is uh, we we are in a fascistic future society where, as far as we can tell, uh, war and poverty have been eliminated. Yeah. But the reason the, the the reasons they've been able to eliminate those is that. Um, Everything is kind of crushed down. No one really seems to have. We don't. We're not, we don't spend any time with um, the great masses, but the images that we get of them, which are, which is just that these are people who are coming to these games or watching these games, and and that that's their big. That's the big excitement of their life. What we're seeing to a degree is an idea of a society that has crushed individualism to a degree is a source of control right uh, there's there's a the the the, th- the thing that turns the, that this film turns into is is the realization that Jonathan E the reason they want him crushed down the reason the corporation wants to kill him essentially either get him to retire or if he's not going to do that kill him is that he is individual enough to have become famous he is a celebrity in a world where there are no longer celebrities. They've yeah. done everything they can to eliminate the possibility of an individual being so well-known that his name could be on the lips of every person on the planet. I, I, think, I, I think it's very interesting. One, thing, one of the things that's interesting about the world that, that um, Rollerball postulates is that, it is, yes, it's totalitarianism, but it's not a dictatorship. No, it's not a cult of personality. It's not the idea. Uh, it's not even a, an abstract idea of like Big Brother. It's just taking care of you. It's like no, everything is just out. Everything is out there. You know. It, you know. It's. It's. There is no individualism. As we as we were saying earlier, even among the so-called leaders of this society, they're not leaders. They're they. There's no individualism among them either. There's, you know, and they kind of know that. They're kind of aware of that. Yeah. Then the movie is very. I mean, you know, it pretty much. Again, this is what I love about the way they were able to. Jewison Jewison does this with the film, is that he pretty much comes right out and explains everything to you in very simple terms. I mean, there's a scene where well, people had a choice. They made a choice here. They could accept, you know, comfort and and food and peace and a level stability of and so yeah. forth like yeah. that. Or, or and they but they had to give up their free you know they gave up freedom and so the film but but yet at the same time it never feels like you're, you're preaching to you I mean it never feels no. there's never the there's never the point where where you know uh, Captain Kirk reads the Constitution you know so to speak <laughs> you know it, it's all it's explained in pretty much just as obviously but it doesn't feel that way and that's the neat trick that his direction and the way the film is written. Able, is able to pull out is that I mean you know it, it, it lays out the theme right there in front of you but it never feels like you're being preached to um, and, and basically yeah I mean you know the, the theme of this 
film is a, is the theme of about I don't know you know what um, twenty to twenty five percent of the Star Trek episodes is that <laughs> is that you know yes we can we can have a peaceful society we can have no conflict we can have no wars we can have every no harmony and everything like this and yeah. but we are giving up what it means to be a human being and and, and like I said st- you know Star Trek how many times did they make that episode. <laughs> <laughs> a few, but it's a, a classic. Few. But it's a classic science fiction theme, you know. And, and I, th- I think Rollerball does this brilliantly, and also, but with the game and the action, it it sucks you in, yeah. and then kind of tricks you into realizing well, that wow, here's a message. Yeah. Well, think about yeah. think about what you just admitted to, which is that the film itself is mirroring in its structure the way this society would have built itself to begin with. Because I guarantee you, Rollerball came first. Yeah. In this society, I guarantee you that Rollerball came first, and that was used to placate people, to channel their aggressive tendencies. Right. If we're going to smother aggressive tendencies to the nth degree, it's going to take several different things. There, there's more than one you know leg to this stool, but one of them is that we have to give them a violent outlet, even if it's just something that they're observing, even if it's just something that they're living their violent tendencies through vicariously, we have to give them rollerball. And the other thing is, we have to give them pills. And that is a big part of this film, and they go out of their way to let you know that's the, gen- that's the, the, the general way in which human beings in this world recreate. They take pills. We're never told exactly what these pills are. They're never even given names. We're never told nobody ever refers to them by some specific name or by slang or any in any way shape or form, but almost everybody you see has a little pill box that they pull out of their pocket every now and then and take a pill. It's very it's very brave new world. It's very right. it's very soma. Right. And that's one of the things that would that would be another way in which you would Keep some of those unfortunate tendencies in the human spirit and the human nature under control is by giving them an outlet that's safe and suppressing other elements by the use of just freely handing out this kind of stuff. Right. Right. Now, here's the thing. If, if we're going to admit that essentially those pills might as well be called Soma, that's, a, that's from Brave New World, from Aldous Huxley's book, uh, we, should, we should also point out that although this isn't in a lot of ways like a big brother, you know, 1984 kind of thing. It really is a surveillance state. There's almost nothing that goes on that the corporations don't know is going on. Right. And it's very interesting that by this point, by this futuristic 2018, instead of directly intervening, which becomes Jonathan E's fear at a certain point, there's a point where He's about to get on a helicopter, which is his general way of getting around because he is in the upper echelons of normal society. He gets around by helicopter. There comes a point where he's a little worried about getting on a helicopter because it might be a little too easy to kill him. But I don't think that that would have happened. I don't think so either because that would have required an individual making a choice right, and an individual carrying out the job. And the theme of this film is that there is no individuals. And that's why the corporation feels like, well, if we have to kill him... We have to kill him by the game. Through the game. Yeah. Through the game. We have to change the game so that it kills him 
because we don't want one person killing him or one person making the decision to kill him. It has to be done by committee. Everything is done by consensus and committee in, in, in this world. In other words, the story will be Jonathan E. died playing X team. Right. Not right. he died by this particular player doing this particular action. Yeah, or even that he was blown up in a helicopter or something like that. Um, I want to move on. Oh, I'm sorry. Kind of get back to the plot and move on. Speaking of, because this ties in with what you were just talking about, but but the party sequence, basically, is, yeah. is, 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 is kind of a fascinating and kind of very odd scene. So I'm kind of curious to hear your take on that. You know what those executives dream about out there behind their desks? They dream they're great rollerballers. They dream they're Jonathan. They have muscles. They bash in faces. Okay, well, before we get to the final game in the film, which is Houston uh, playing uh, New York for the the championship, the rollerball championship, um, this is where we have Bartholomew hosting the executive teleconference to discuss the game's future. This is when that committee decision is made that uh, the Houston-New York game will be played with no penalties and no substitutions and no time limit in the hope that Jonathan, if he does do what he's threatening and continue to play instead of retire, will be killed during the game. And they reveal in this section why Jonathan must retire. Rollerball was conceived not only to satisfy the normal human bloodlust, the need for violence, but to demonstrate the futility of individualism. And Jonathan's popularity threatens this idea. Um, so after successfully making his way to Geneva to access the supercomputer where all the books are stored, Jonathan receives uh, finally receives a visit from Ella, his wife. Uh, it seems that uh, this always felt when Ella shows up, it seems as if this was a kind of last-ditch effort. It definitely feels that way. Oh, yeah, that's definitely what it is. I mean, they, to try they to sent get her there yeah. because it's like, okay, we... we you got to talk this guy out of this. You got you got to get him to retire. And maybe right. if we give you to him, he will stop. Right. But he makes it clear they have a they have a couple of it. It's it's clear that she came to their stay for a few days, and they're they're together for a few days. We see them horseback riding. We see them walking uh, through uh, through the woods and having these different conversations. And it's very interesting because although Jonathan is a, a man who who's not as articulate as he. As he should be, and he knows it. He knows he's not because he's trying really hard to get some of these ideas that are in his head into a form that will make sense to someone else if he speaks them out loud. And he can only kind of barely do it. And it's in the scenes with Maud Adams's character with Ella that it seems he comes the closest to being able to formulate a way to to, to say this stuff. But what's most interesting about these sequences when these two people are having conversations is we learned that, yes, it's true that uh, an executive wanted her and that's why she went and lived with him and, and now has been with him for years and they have a couple of children together. They live in Rome. It's clear that to Jonathan, she's the uh, the one that got away. Yeah. he's She's the one that he has, he, he's felt that was always the love of his life and that without her, he's always felt a kind of emptiness with inside himself. But what's great about this film is that we also hear from her about why she wasn't so sad to leave. Because 
he was so wrapped up in the game. It's the only thing he lived for. And she, most of the time, felt like she was unimportant to him. So when this edict came down that someone else wanted her, she didn't resist it. Right. She didn't feel as if she were as Im- were as important as she should be. Yeah, it, it's like Jonathan had this idea in there said that the, this they had this true love, and she was ripped away from him because she didn't have a choice. Right. And then he finds out that that no, she was kind of happy to go. Yeah. That really shatters his whole idea that he's had of her all this time is that oh well we had this great thing but she had to she was taken away from me and she, she couldn't help herself she didn't have a choice you know blah 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 um and and yeah you know it's just that kind of like shatters this one scrap that he had of something that it was like it was like the one thing he believed in you know yeah. so to speak something higher it was it was the it was the one bit of faith or religious religion. It was his religion, yeah. basically. Yeah, it, it was his religion, and I yeah. wanted to. I, that's something I wanted to touch on here at this point, which is, it's in this section of the film when you begin to realize some of the things are obvious that are missing in this society that are in our society, and whenever something big, let's say, is missing. From a futuristic society that's being depicted on screen or in a in a in a story of any type, it's it be, it behooves you to pay attention to what is missing and why it might be gone. And one of the things that's definitely missing is religion. There's no religion in this world. There's no there are no churches. There's no faith. There's no talk of religion. There's no talk of God. There's no uh, there are no uh, there's not even there aren't even oaths like God damn it or anything like that. It's as if that aspect of the human condition has just been edited out of this society to the point where at this point in time, no one even thinks in those terms. And one wonders if one of the many reasons they would want to squelch individualism is that individualism and religion go hand in hand. A man rises up and preaches things could be better things could be different yeah. things could be much much better if only we did x y or z the basis of religion is there is a better world there is a better way and we can make it that way right and there must be there's only one thing that will help us make it that way and that is faith we must right. believe in either a higher power or a better way well, one thing that this this society and the people who run it, quote-unquote run it, definitely don't want you thinking about is a better way. Yeah, well, and, and that's true because, I mean, basically the whole idea of rebellion is based around faith. It, it may not be a religious faith. Exactly. But it's a faith that there is, a, as you said, there is a better way. There is another system that will be better, that will be fairer, that yeah. will be, you know, and, and if, if you're able to, totally remove the idea of faith in an individual or in an ideal or in a deity completely, then you've you've basically eliminated rebellion because right. of any type because because um, that's kind of the basis of all of it, you know, is that if you if there is no faith that things can be better, then it's just, oh well things are just that that's just the way things are. You know, you there is nothing else. 
And think about what that means, is that in this society, and from, from the perspective of how we're viewing this story, this movie is equating, this story is equating freedom with religion. Not directly, yeah. but as a, there, there's a step in between. Freedom gives you the ability to rebel, and rebelling gives you the ability to build a faith. Right, or or you have to have a faith in order to to build a rebellion. To build, to, yeah, to build a rebellion. Yeah. So by crushing, although I don't think they, I don't think it, crushing almost seems as if it were a violent act. Right. But I don't think this society was built on a violent way of doing this. I think that it was very much the bread and circuses idea, the circus maximus thing. Let's let's feed, you know, let, let's well, let's placate, let's placate them. There's some mention. There's some mention of the wars. You know, they the corporate about. wars. Yeah, the corporate yeah, yeah, wars. Yeah, the wars, and 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 it's that case of where people are desperate and they turn to. Uh, again, it was like I, I guess in, in in a way, this society was probably created on a ba- acts of faith after these wars. After I assume some type of nuclear war or, or some type of very devastation, devastated society. It was like well. Who's still standing? Well, the corporations right. are still standing. Well, maybe they can save us. And the corporations managed to pay off. And that was like, well, okay, here's the trade-off. We'll, we'll take over and, and fix things, but they're going to be done our way. So. Now, one of the things that's clear, we talked about this earlier, one of the things that it's clear that they've done to keep people in their place, to keep people from uh, even thinking about rebellion, is not just the pills. It is... And this is the most devastating thing. It is by controlling information and controlling education. And it is that aspect of this society that is the biggest thing that Jonathan E. has to overcome to make it to the end of this film and still be alive. He has to overcome the fact that he is incredibly ignorant of most things that would help him see this world clearer. Mm. Yeah, it's been denied to him. It's been denied to all of them. He can't. He, he can't read books. The the scene where with Ralph Richardson, where he finally goes to the to the to the supercomputer, and he the the the, the question he formulates, the computer answers. The question he asks of the computer is, and he and he fumbles around with it, but he essentially wants. He asks, I want to. I, I want to know about uh, decisions. Made by you know executive decisions, how corporate decisions are made, and the after some fumbling around, the computer answers and says executive decisions are made by executives. Yes, because that's the answer to the question as he poses it, because he doesn't have enough knowledge to ask to really ask the question that he wants answered because he doesn't even know what the real question is that's how effectively this society has been built he doesn't know enough to know that he doesn't know enough it's heartbreaking because you can see because James Conn's a hell of an actor you can watch the wheels that are turning behind his eyes and you see that they're grinding together. And in those moments, as this movie goes on, you begin to realize he's never thought this hard about anything in his life. Right. And now that he's doing it, he's realizing 
that he can't and something's missing. He knows something's wrong. And what's missing is the basic knowledge that would allow him to even know what the hell is going on. Right. That's the scariest thing to me in this movie. It's how I worry day to day in my average life. Just what is it that I don't know that would help me figure shit out? That's why I'm always trying to read things. I'm always trying to figure, I'm always trying to find new pieces of information, new perspectives, new opinions, because somewhere in there, even if I disagree or I don't like the answers that I find, at least having that in front of me allows me to make a smarter decision further down the line. That's what he's coming to terms with, is that he doesn't even know enough to know what to say. That's brutal. And that's more brutal than the physical violence is yeah. the, the, the fact that he just realizes as this film goes on how chained he is. He realizes that he is no better than those damned horses that he's riding around on that ranch. That's all he is. The horse doesn't care who's feeding it. The horse doesn't care what kind of saddle it's wearing. It's a beast of burden. And it doesn't know any better because there's no reason for it to know any better. And he is that beast. He is that horse. Right. Well, and that that's kind of having that, especially having the discovery with his wife whenever it's like that last illusion is shattered. Yeah. In a way, that prepares him for this final game. It does. It, sets it, him it, up. it kind of puts him on this course of where he realizes, like, the only way I... I, I, I don't know how to do this. I, I, I don't know enough, as you were saying, to... to to know what questions to ask. I don't know how to rebel. I don't know how to do all this. The one thing I know how to do is play rollerball better than anybody. And that's his method of rebellion. And that's that what becomes his method of yeah. rebellion. It is, is, is that, okay, you've put me in a ring specifically with the idea of killing me. Well, you're, it's not going to happen. I'm going to kill every single man here if I have to. Right. <laughs> and and and, especially, and he really drives that point home when he kills the player directly in front of Bartholomew. It, right in front of him. Right. Yeah. I mean, and it's not like, and and it's not. And what's interesting is not like it's not a case of like you're next. It's a case of like you're having to sit sit here and watch what you've made me do. Yeah. You know. And I am, they are not killing me, I am killing them. As a sideline, I would just like to point out that that final match is incredibly brutal. And it is, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, if you can separate, at that point in the film, I'm so emotionally caught up in things that I can't do it. I can't separate myself in the way I'm about to right. posit that it would be interesting if you could. But just the physicality of that entire final game right. is incredible. Yeah, well, and, and and I think it's also interesting that when he gets down to it, there, there's actually two survivors. There's him and the one other person on the New York team, which he could, who he could have killed. Yeah. But at that last moment, it's like again, it's like he stops himself. I'm I could kill this guy, but no, again, I'm going to express my individuality and my free will because I'm going to choose not to do it. I'm going to kill him, and I'm going to make that score and win the game because that's what I do. That's what I know how to do. And that's, you know, and because it, it could have been, he could have killed the guy and just walked off the track. 
or I mean, not kill or, or killed him or not killed him for that matter, and just walked off the track. But it's like, no, I've got to make that point. I've got to win the game, right? Because that's who I am. And um, and then of course there's the final scene after he after he scores a point and he starts circling he the just track. Circles the track, yeah. And, and the audience starts chanting his name, you know. And it's like it's like everything that they have set out to do about about rollerball being a way to to destroy individualism he has totally upended he's because he and yeah. and, and and I love the la- I love the way uh Jason d- chose to do that last shot where he comes around and he freeze and it zooms in and he freeze frames yeah and then it kind of I believe it kind of zooms closer into the freeze frame because and, and that because it, it blurs, and that, it blurs that image yeah. yeah his image persists because the idea is that no matter what na- happens next, I mean, he could come off the track, go in the locker room. They could have somebody go down there and shoot him in the head right then, and he's gone. The fact is, what he has accomplished right there at that point is going to persist. And I'm and, going. And, and, and I've, got a, and I've got a question for you. And that is the beginning of the end of this society. It is the beginning of the end of this society. Do you think that that is the moment when? This society, this religionless society, just gave birth to a messiah. Yes, basically. I mean, you know, it may he may not have spiritual or supernatural overtones, you know, in the same right. sense that. But it, but it's a different kind know. of society. That's not what this society, this kind of sterile society, would have given birth to as a kind of Christ-like figure. But that seems to be what he just became. Right. Because every human being on the planet watched this game. Yeah. And he's the only person alive yeah. at the end of it. And, and and sure, some people are going to go back to their normal lives. But there's going to be somebody that the, that the next time they're confronted with a situation where they feel frustrated, it's not going to be, well, that's just the way it is. It's like, no, look what Jonathan E. did. I can stand up and do something too. Well, not only that. I, I misspoke. He's not the only one left alive. You're right. He left that last player alive. He chose not to kill him. And, and that, I think, that moment of, that's the biggest rebellion. Right. That's his biggest moment of rebellion. And that's his last act before slamming that ball into the goal and scoring the single point in the entire yeah, freaking game. Exactly. I, I, you, have programmed, you, have, you have programmed this game to be, for there to only be one survivor well, I'm not going to play. I'm not, even, yeah. I, I'm not even going to give you that. I'm going to break these rules. I'm going to break it. I'm going to do it my way. Yeah. Frank Sinatra would be proud. <laughs> Something else I'd like to point out, just as a first of all, this is a, a brilliantly made movie. These are professionals working at the top of their game. The guy who the cinematographer on this, you know, a few years later, shot Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, this is these are. I mean, we're, we're ta- we talked about the stunt team. Norman Jewison just came off two musicals and was looking for something. He'd just done uh, Fiddle on the Roof and uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. This is, you know, this is a man who uh, made just about every kind of film under the sun and knew exactly what he was doing. And I want to point out to you that in that final scene, when he's he's just brutalizing and killing that second to last New York player right in front of Mr. Bartholomew, did you pay attention to the fact? That the reflection of the pl- in the plexiglass is of flames right underneath right. Mr. Bartholomew. 
it, 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 Jewison could not have framed the shot any better Again, to point it's out a look, he's, he's Satan. Look yeah. at him. This is Lucifer. Yeah. And that even more sets up the idea in my head clearly this is the start of a religion. There's your villain. There is Satan. Right, right. And, well, I want to say a little bit about Jewison's career. He's one of those directors that, and, and you don't see these kind of directors anymore. The, the, the directors that I like to think of as, uh, I, I like to call them auteur craftsmen. Yeah. And, and the supreme example of that for me is, is Robert Wise. Wise. And this was a guy, and, 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 and I think Jewison's, you look at his career and the movies he made, and he's exactly, you know, he falls in that same category. He's somebody who, who knew how to make a good film. Hollywood could hand him a project almost no matter what it was, a crime film, uh, a musical, a comedy film, and, and he knew how to make a good film. Yeah. He wasn't an auteur in the sense of Hitchcock or Fritz Lang or you know yeah, he or, or, he or whoever. He so he but at the same time he wasn't just a craftsman either. He kind of falls in that mid zone where where okay, I know how to make a good film, but if there's a message or a, a voice that I can latch on to in this material, I'm gonna grab it and get all I can out of it. Right. And that that's something I feel like Robert Wise was just an absolute master of. And I and I think that's true of, of Norman Jewison too. That's that's is, a good that's a good parallel to to draw Robert Wise. Because both of them, you know, did very famous and successful musicals. And the thing about Jewison is I mean this this the man made the Thomas Crown affair and in the heat of the night. Uh, but then he also made The Russians Are Coming, The Russians yeah, Are Coming, yeah, yeah. And, and Moonstruck, which is also a great romantic comedy. And Fiddler on the Roof and Jesus Christ Superstar. So, I mean, you know, it's like the guy really, yeah. again, it's like he was obviously a great craftsman, but he also, on a lot of his films, he tended to favor films with social messages. And that's when those were the movies where he could, oh, this I can really sink my teeth into this. Like something like Agnes of God or In Country, right. which are movies that he made uh, later in his career. Where wow, man, there's some there's some difficult there's some difficult stuff being talked about in these stories, and it's clear he's investing these with as much skill and ability as he can. And you see that across his entire career. Auteur craftsman, that's a good phrase. I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. Thank you. I made that up. <laughs> Copyrighted. 2018. The nah. real the feel, real twenty the real twenty eighteen. Feel free. <laughs> feel free to use it. <laughs> yeah, things were much simpler when I was a kid. We still had three nations. That was before the corporate wars, even before rollerball. For everything. Well, I think we've discussed, uh, we've, got, we've definitely gone through the entire plot of the film, and we've talked about uh, we've talked about it a fair amount, possibly too much, I'm not sure, but there's still a few things, a few points to bring up. Uh, you wanted to make note of the use of classical music in the film. Yeah, well, um, Andre Previn did the score for this film, and mainly he used classical pieces, and, and most obviously the, what, Takata and D minor, yeah. which he opens the film with, and... Uh, and it's kind of and and since this is a '70s science fiction film, I have the soundtrack LP here in my hands <laughs> for it because I collect science fiction film soundtracks from the '70s on LP when I can find them for reasonable prices. Reasonable some price. some have gotten pretty high. Uh, Rollerball is actually pretty cheap, mainly because I guess it is mostly just kind of recycled classical pieces. Well, there in the there's, film, there's but there is one, yeah, there there's one original track that Andre Previn wrote, and it's it's on the album. It's titled Executive Party, and it's the music that's playing in the background when they have the big party with the executives yeah, and yeah, yeah. and so forth. And and that's a really cool bit of kind of futuristic '70s funk 
music, not what you'd expect from Andre Previn at all, but it, it works perfectly. Well, what was Previn in, generally in the, in known for? What was well, I mean, he's more of a thought of more as a classical composer, oh, know, okay, style composer, yeah. So, uh, um, but yeah, it, it, it's a, it's an excellent soundtrack. It's just like I said, but but it is interesting. Most of it is. Uh, is is uh, Shostakovich, Bach, some Tchaikovsky, you know, and so forth. And uh, uh, Jewison, I, I listened to uh, the commentary track that Norman Jewison, Jewison did for this film back in uh, the late 90s, and he pointed out the reason that they went with classical music for the soundtrack was primarily because he wanted something that would seem a little timeless. In other words, music that has already lasted hundreds of years as it was. And so therefore it wouldn't be that odd for it to still be music that was part of society, you know, in a in a future world, which makes a lot of sense because that's something that you can be assured of. As soon as you start positing what music is going to be like, you know, a hundred a hundred years from now, yeah, you're going to be wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The uh, um, um, and, well, also I had read I had read online too that apparently uh, it was influenced. The film was influenced by um, Clockwork Orange some. So yes. probably probably some of it came from the use of the way Kubrick used Beethoven and Clockwork Orange also. Probably so. Surprised. Probably so. said that you think this fits into the upper echelon of uh, 70 science fiction films this this kind of range of science fiction films that you and I've been talking about off and on, on the podcast and I agree with you because uh, I will say that um, this viewing of it even opened up my mind and my to, to this film a little bit more than it had been before I have always thought well of the movie but it was this viewing of it that really made me realize how good it is, not just as a, like I say, as a kinetic action film, but as a film with a lot to say. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, and in the final act of this movie, I felt, I, I was kind of overwhelmed with emotion at times. I was, I was very caught up in what I was witnessing because I had a, a 
level of sympathy and understanding of the kind of impotence that Jonathan E. is feeling and the realization that we are at all, all of us at some point in our lives are in that trap that he finds himself in, which is that he has very few options and the only thing he can do is the only thing that he's good at. He has only one path forward and so he's just going to have to barrel through. Right. And, and, and the only way he can rebel is, that's the only way he can rebel because that's all he really knows how to do. He, can, he has that self-awareness, as you talked about, that he realizes that uh, he can't do anything else. This is the only thing I know how to do. So how can I take this and make this as my means of rebellion against a system that I no longer believe in? Yeah, I, I agree. I, well, I already said that I think Rollerball is one of the best science fiction films from that time period. It is kind of a sleeper. It's not. Yeah. It's one everyone remembers, but it's not one that you automatically think of You know, whenever you say, oh, well, what's the best science fiction films from that kind of decade of 67 to 77. Um, it's it's not one that leaps out immediately. It's not one of the big ones that you think of, like 2001 or, or, or even Logan's Run, which is actually kind of flawed, but that one's a big one that kind of leaps out in the, right. in the mind. Um, or, or several others. Rollerball is more subtle because it, it, kind of, it's kind of a sneaky film. It's, you don't realize... It's not out there and flashy like a lot of the other films that you might want to put in your top ten list. But it's, so, yeah, it's, but it definitely, the level of quality of it is just outstanding. Yeah. Well, the the movie was only a, it was only a moderate financial success, but it is one that, um, as you say, has kind of lived on for a very long period of time. And it's one that uh, I think plays better as... You get older as you, the audience member gets older. As you become someone with a little bit more maturity, and therefore can kind of read the emotions that Jonathan E is going through better, I think the movie becomes much more insightful because it, it, you, as an older person, bring your experience to it, and it allows you to see just how well. First of all, just how carefully nuanced the path that our main character takes through this through this story really is. As the movie begins, this is a man who is doing exactly what he feels he was born to do. And then he's told, you have to stop. He's not given a reason. It's not an injury. It's not uh, something outside of himself that tells him this other than the people who make his life possible. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so incredibly relatable to an older person. Someone who's reached middle age has had that experience a few times where something outside of him, something that he has almost no control over whatsoever, is dictating his life for him. Well, and yeah, and, and we, we've also had some experience working with the corporate world. Yes. And just how frustrating and, and pointless and... Uh, so much of the corporate world is. I mean, you know, that's been my own personal experience uh, yeah. from back when I worked in that world. Uh, I'm living it right now. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and also, is to, I mean, watching this movie now is just how incredibly prescient it was. Um, sure, not on the details, because that's not the, really that's the, not the goal, point. the point yeah. of science fiction. But on the big themes, it is, you know, which, which is that we are closer now than ever to be living in an oligarchy. Uh, democracy is being threatened by 
the strength and the power of corporations. Yeah. And and uh, and yeah, it's just and, and you know, or I said, you know, who'd have thought Rollerball would come through, come true. By the year, by the year that it was set in, unfortunately, instead of Rollerball, we have Dancing with the Stars instead. But you know, it's kind of the same thing. Kind of the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't see a Messiah coming out of Dancing with the Stars, though. <laughs> maybe the Bachelor. <sighs> anyway, um, this one gets top marks for me, and I see that it gets it from you as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, not as not as much rollicking good fun as we've had on some of the other ones that we've covered, but um, but just what an incredibly excellent movie. Agreed, agreed. This the uh, in tone, it's uh, a little closer to Soylent Green than I would have remembered. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think this movie is succeeds better than Soylent Green, but of course we had that we've had, we had that discussion. discussion. <laughs> Go back and listen to that episode of the show, folks. The Soylent Green episode from uh, two years ago. Oh, my goodness. Of course. Now, Randy, the time has come to discuss what 1970s uh, science fiction film should we cover next? Because there's still some biggies out there. Well, I we I have the inside track on that because we've already discussed it before we went on the on audio. Oh, he's, uh, pull, he's pulled back the curtain. <laughs> so, as we said, Rollerball, excellent film. Not a lot of goofy stuff you can hang your, hang no, your hat no, on. Really. Just a really well-made incredibly well done science fiction film so next time which hopefully will be less than a year let's hope we're going for the goofy folks in a big <laughs> way but but also some serious filmmaking too yeah, there's we're, some there's some there's some less than goofy stuff in this particular yeah. film we're talking about but you, 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 but but when it comes to goofy you can't get much goofier than Zardoz oh yeah you can John Borman's <laughs> You can, get, you can get goofier than Zardoz. Well, but, it's, yeah, it's, but, it's, but in the field we're talking about, 70 science fiction, it would be difficult. Yeah, it's pretty high up that ladder. So, um, yeah, so I'm really looking forward to discussing that. And, and we'll have to do that soon, maybe in just a couple of months. We'll I think, I think, I, I, honestly, I'm glad to get back on track talking 70 science fiction with you because it is a it is a favorite subject of mine. And, and yes, Zardoz is a film, I you know, spoiler alert, I love dearly. But uh, I'm going to be the first one to admit uh, yeah, it's weird as hell. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, is it weird? <laughs> yeah, and there's a lot more to it than just Sean Connery in a diaper, which is what a lot of people seem to yeah. fixate on, yeah. on in a in a bright red diaper. But but you know, hey, <laughs> <laughs> there's yeah, there's a lot more to it. Yeah. So uh, not sure exactly. We haven't exactly scheduled it yet, folks. We're trying to we're trying to stay a little loose because our both of our schedules are very difficult, but. Uh, Randy, I want to thank you, and I'm, I do look forward to uh, talking about Zardoz. Yeah, and I, I would like to get back on a regular schedule with this, because there there's a lot of other movies out there. I, oh, yeah. I, I, Omega Man. Phase um, 4. Phase 4. Um, last Days of, what is it? Last Days of Mankind on Earth. Or he, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're talking about the, the, uh, the Jerry Cornelius yeah, film. Yeah, the Jerry Cornelius film, which is very odd. <laughs> <laughs> but not, but as odd as it is, yeah. I wouldn't call that one goofy. Yeah, it's just odd, odd, yeah. um, and and a lot of other and and even even some bigger ones there that we haven't we we haven't talked about the eight films any and that would be no we haven't talked about Clockwork Orange either. Clockwork Orange yep there's so, a lot of movies there to talk about but yeah. next time uh, Randy and I sit down we're going to talk about Zardoz so uh, gird your loins yes <laughs> with with a red cloth and the gun is good. Ah, uh, the penis is evil. <laughs> but we all knew that. We are, yes, we did. We were aware of that. Randy, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.